Grace Family Church of Rhode Island presents Word of Hope, a sermon series with Pastor Luciano Cozzi. Welcome. The Word of Hope sermon series is a ministry of Grace Family Church of Rhode Island. It was instituted to bring sound teachings from the Word of God to as many people as possible. Our purpose is to offer you a message that is both practical and contemporary, that brings the Word of God to light in a way that makes sense in daily life. As you listen to this message, it is our hope and prayer that the Lord will bless you through it and bring you hope, comfort, and guidance. And now, Pastor Kotze. I remember going with my uh, little daughter to see a movie, an animated movie. And I remember in that movie there was an elephant thinking he was a dog. And you can imagine the mischief, all the problems that would come from an elephant being convinced that he's a dog. It's not fitting for an elephant to act like a dog, especially when the dog comes up to you <laughs> and jumps on you, right? <laughs> right. It, it's kind of crazy, and that's what made it funny. Just like us thinking that we are in debt to the flesh. As if the flesh offered great and awesome things, and the spirit was kind of, oh, how do we say that, kind of boring, maybe? Because after all, in our modern generations, these kind of things are often considered as a little bit dry, a little bit boring. Just as crazy, but in a sad way just as not fitting, but in a dramatic way. Now here in Romans 8, remember what we're talking about. Paul had just stated that he is set free from, quote-unquote, the body of this death, as he mentioned earlier in the epistle, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So it is in Jesus Christ and through Jesus Christ that we have redemption. Now in this chapter, then he goes on to describe the ministry of the Holy Spirit, and he begins the chapter with, therefore, connecting the next statements with the fact that our deliverance is indeed through our Lord Jesus Christ. And stating that because of the fact that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. At key points, Paul reverses the words. He doesn't say Jesus Christ, Jesus the Messiah. It says the Messiah Jesus in the Greek. And when he says the Messiah Jesus, he is stressing the fact that he is addressing him as Messiah, and he's stressing the fact that the Messiahship of Jesus is extremely important. He is the Anointed One. He is the one in whom and through whom and by whom and for whom we are redeemed. We are justified and stand in God's grace, therefore, because of what Jesus Christ has done, and not under his condemnation. He reminded us that this freedom is not something we can achieve through the law of Moses, or any other law for that matter, but it is a free gift of God in and through Christ. So it really doesn't make any sense for us to strive to earn it. You can't earn a free gift. Then he goes on to explain that those who are in the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, 
This means that this mind is hostile to God. But those who are of the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit, and this mind is life and peace in Christ. We, however, and here comes the good news, the reassurance, we are in the Spirit. And then he qualifies that if indeed the Holy Spirit dwells in us, in other words, it's not something that we can do. We cannot choose and work our way to be in the Spirit. How does that happen? Well, if the Holy Spirit is in us, we are in the Spirit. It is a work of God that occurs in us. It is not our work that makes it happen. It is God's work. And that is the only way we can be in Christ. We cannot be in Christ apart from the indwelling and the work of the Holy Spirit in us. That's very, very important because the indwelling presence of Christ in us is what really does the job. Now, but, but wait a minute, Luciano. You just said the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, and now you shift around and say the indwelling of Christ. Well, it's not just me doing it because the two are equated in verse 10. The indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit and the indwelling presence of Christ are equated in that statement. So we have a promise, and that promise is a promise of eternal life through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. And that is the context of the passage that we're looking at today. Now, because we are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit of God, notice that, because Christ is in us and we in him, we have life. So then, verse 12 says, brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh, for if, you live in, if you're living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you're putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. Now notice that because we are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit of God, that's the reason for which we're under no obligation to the flesh, but we're under obligation to the Spirit. And what is that kind of obligation? Not to earn it, as we said, as we know very well from many other passages that we've seen, but to respond to that. Oftentimes, Paul is fond of, of the wording, we are dead to sin, right? We are dead to the flesh, but we are alive in the Spirit. So think about that metaphor. Think about that way of expressing himself that Paul often uses. And think how much activity you would want to see in a dead person. Well, like I said before, and I mentioned a number of times, by definition, death is the absence of activity. So when you are dead to something, you are not active. But when you are alive to something, you are very active in it. And so we are called to be active in the Spirit, active in Christ, but not active in the things of this world, not active in sin, for example. Now, to be in the flesh was addressed earlier by Paul as being hostile against God and dead. And in verse 13 of chapter 8, that if you are living according to the flesh, you must die, but if you by the Spirit are put into death the deeds of the body, you will live. It's not a formula to earn eternal life, but rather the result of being in Christ by and through the Holy Spirit. Notice what Paul wrote just a few pages before. For the wages of sin is death, and the wages is what we earn. You go to work at the end of the week or every other week, you get your wages. That's what you earn. That's what you deserve. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God, the gift is not earned. You cannot earn a gift because the moment you earn it, the moment you try to earn it, it's no longer a gift. You no longer accept it as a gift. You, you try to turn it into something else. The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So now would Paul contradict himself here in verse 13 and say, well, you're going to get that life only if you do certain things? 
Of course not. It's the other way around. It's because we are not in the flesh but in the Spirit of God. And because Christ is in us and in him we have life, that is the reason for which we are under no obligation to the flesh. We are not to respond to, to the flesh, but we are to respond to the Holy Spirit. If we are in the Spirit, and Paul just affirmed that we are, then we have a calling. What calling? To respond to the Holy Spirit. To go along with it. To not resist it. To be guided by the Holy Spirit. And by doing that, we put to death the deeds of the body and live because we have eternal life in Christ. And that is consistent with who we are in Christ. The elephant and the dog. If we are in Christ, we know who we are. But then to act as something else is, it doesn't make any sense. It's inconsistent. It's strange. It's weird. It's, it's wrong. Just like an elephant acting like a dog. But the elephant who knows who he is will act like an elephant. So an elephant who acts like an elephant makes sense. It's consistent with the identity the elephant has. An elephant like, acting like a dog is inconsistent. And the elephant acting like a dog is just like us in Christ acting like we are in the world. It's not who we are anymore. Now, many people make a mistake in here, because, and, and we already explained it last time that we address Romans. They make a mistake because they start equating this discussion of the Apostle Paul in Romans with two equal but opposite natures at fight and at odds in conflict within us, you know? If you want to be cartoonish, well, here's the angel on one side, the demon on the other side, and the two are fighting, trying to lead us in different ways, but they are both equal but opposite. Well, let me tell you, uh, or remind you, because we already addressed it, uh, again, last time we were talking about Romans, that that is not Christian. It's not Christian uh, theology, it's not Christian philosophy, it's not Christian thought. That it comes from ancient pagan Greek philosophy. It comes from the idea of dualism, of two identical but opposing forces in a universe fighting against each other. And if you stretch it further, it will actually equate God with Satan as equals but opposites, which is absolutely nonsensical. So you wonder why Paul insists that the one who is in us is greater than anything else, is greater than the world? And how many identities do we have? One. Now, we have a shared and common nature that we all share, our humanness. We already discussed that. I'm just bringing it back to your memory. But that nature is being redeemed in Christ. It's being transformed, changed in Christ. Why? Because we have a new birth. We are new in Christ. We are made new in Christ. So we have one identity. And Paul here is stressing that our identity is not found in the flesh, but it's found in Christ. So who are you? Who am I? Christians. What Christians means is we are followers of Jesus Christ, and that comes from the indwelling of the Holy Spirit who draws us to make us one with Christ and in Christ one with the Father. That's what Christian means. We are Christians. We are in Christ. And because that's who we are, children of God in Christ, we'll address that in a moment, then it's consistent for us to do what? To respond to that and behave likewise, accordingly. Not like an elephant acting like a dog and making a mess everywhere it goes. Verse 15, For you have not received the spirit of slavery, leading to fear again, but you have received the spirit of adoption, as sons, by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God, 
and if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if we did, we suffer with them so that we may also be glorified with them. It's kind of interesting that we always look at all the other statements in Romans 8 and we want to miss verse 17. You can't cut and paste. We want to read everything that's written in there, right? So, contrary to sin, which enslaves us and kills us, the Holy Spirit has adopted us as God's children. And that's good news. When we are caught in legalism, that legalism wants to tell us that we are slaves of God. We are servants of God. And if we don't act in a certain way, he's going to smack us. He's going to kill us. He's going to kick us out. He's going to reject us. He's going to do all sorts of horrible things. That's not the language of Paul. That's not the teaching of Paul. It's not the teaching of Jesus. It's not the teaching of the apostles. Their teaching is that we are adopted as children of God, not slaves, not servants, but children. And there is a difference in a household between the slave and the child, because the slave is not an heir, but the child is. In fact, it says we are born of God, and this is testified by the Holy Spirit dwelling in us. The very God who creates all things is now indwelling in us in the person of the Holy Spirit and transforming and changing us. Now, children of God in here is, well, the Greek word that is used is tekna, which means born once, which stresses the believer's birth relationship to God. And it's through that birth relationship that we have that inheritance in Christ. It is through Christ that we are new creatures. It is through Christ that we are born as children of God spiritually. And therefore, it is in Christ and through Christ that we are heirs of God, co-heirs with Christ. Now, wait a minute. This is, this is an amazing statement. Think about that. Do you realize what that means? Paul here is, is reminding us that because of our adoption as children, we are heirs. Yeah, how would you like to be an heir of something? Yeah, that's pretty cool to receive an inheritance, isn't it? Wow, I didn't expect that. Can you imagine what it means to be heirs of God? Co-heirs with Christ? No, we're not getting it yet. Pause. Think. Think it through. Let it sink in your mind, please. Let God Allow your mind to picture that, if you can possibly do that. Jesus Christ, at the end of the Gospel of Matthew, is reported, before he left the disciples, reported to saying one thing, and one thing is extremely important. He said, all things have been put under me. All things in creation are under Christ. John 1.1, 1, 1, it says, there is absolutely nothing that was made, that was ever made without him. So Christ is the creator of all things, and God has given him authority over all things. Sounds like that's his inheritance. But you are co-heirs with Christ. Wow. Amazing statement. Think it through. Let it sink. It takes a while. Because somehow our mind rejects that thought that we are co-heirs with him. That in other words, we're going to be sharing with him all things. And, by the way, his authority over all things. Because of that, we are called to participate with Christ in his future glory. Oh yeah, he's going to share with you his future glory, or the glory that he has now in the future, he will be sharing it with you and manifesting it in a different way. But that also means that we now participate in his sufferings. That's that verse 17 that we want to jump over. Yes, we do. Let's face it, we hurt, we suffer. 
We want health, but sometimes we don't get it. We want wealth, but sometimes we don't see it. We hurt. Jesus was rejected, and we are too. He suffered persecution. We do too. And he told us very clearly, listen, if they persecuted me, they will persecute you too. He didn't deceive us in any way, did he? He suffered pain, and we do too, but are able to bear it faithfully because of his presence, because we don't carry that yoke only by ourselves alone. We carry it with him. He faced many trials. We do too. But we go stronger and stronger as a result of them. And if indeed we suffer with them, by the way, is not questioning it. In the Greek, the, the, the word is aper. That means if, as it is the fact. In other words, it's a way of saying, because we suffer with him, we're also going to be glorified with him. Let's look at verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Wow. Being in Christ implies suffering with him. Yes. However, Paul here says that all the sufferings that we may experience are not even worthy to be compared with the glory that God will be revealing to us, in us. And that is extremely important. You see, Paul is here is rushing to a conclusion of one statement and an opening of another because Paul doesn't want us to be left with this negative sense of futility in our battle against sin and in our endurance of suffering. Paul immediately says, yeah, we do suffer. Yes, we have problems. Yes, we have this struggle. But all of this is not even worthy to be compared with the glory that God is going to be revealing in us. And you know what? You and I experience suffering in, in a, to a certain degree, and by all means, there is a lot of suffering within us and around us. But listen, let's be honest, shall we? Oh, man, it's hot today. The air conditioner is not working. Drama. <laughs> I don't like this meal. I don't want this meal. I don't like it. I don't like this stuff. Well, then don't eat. Fine. I remember my grandparents. A lesson they taught us. You don't like it now? I guarantee you'll like it later. <laughs> and guess what? Somehow, by some sort of magic, we did. The later would come where we, we did like that thing that we didn't like before either. But you know what? There are people who are starving to death. There are people who not only don't have air conditioning, they don't have a place to stay. Oh, you know what? So-and-so told me that I was blah, 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 and it really hurt. Yeah, but there are people who are not being told bad words. There are people who are being slaughtered. Okay, why do we want to remember those things? Because that's a check in reality. How come that instead of being so grateful to God for the blessings that we have, for the easy life that we have, even in our worst, that we constantly gripe and complain because of what we don't have? You know, there are people in this world who really know what suffering really is. And yet, even their suffering, or even the sum total of their suffering, it's not even worthy to be compared with the glory that God is going to be revealing to you and to them. So how big is that glory? Look at verse 19. Because Paul is not giving up here, is it? He just concluded one section of his letter, but he's opening another one in that encouragement because he says, listen, people, you are not defeated in that sin that you're struggling with. You are not defeated in that. And you're not defeated by the pain and the suffering you have to go through 
because just as you participate in the sufferings of Jesus Christ, you will also participate in his glory. And let me tell you something about that glory, he says. For we know, for the anxious longing, verse 19, the anxious longing, by the way, wording, extremely emphatic here, our creation waits eagerly. Wow, is he trying to tell us something? The anxious longing, waiting eagerly for what? For the revealing of God. No, that's not what he says. For the revealing of the sons of God. And by the way, notice that here is not the children of God. It's the sons of God. It's a different Greek word that means a child that has come to the age in which usually he has the right to use his inheritance. A mature child. So, the anxious longing for the creation waits eagerly for you, the children of God who have now grown, who are now redeemed in Christ, and through the experiences that you've been going through, the struggles you've been going through, you are now made stronger, mature, growing up into the stature, toward the stature of Christ, and now you're finally released in that state that God has in store for you that is causing all of creation to eagerly wait in anticipation. Why? Verse 20. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willing, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of God. No. Into the freedom of the glory of God. No. Into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. That's you. It says all of creation groans, anxiously longing for God to finish his work in you and to manifest you in the fullness of what he is accomplishing in you. That's the hope that he's talking about in verse 20. And in verse 21 it says, why? Because creation itself, which is now under futility, decay, will be set free from that slavery to corruption into the freedom of your glory. What glory are we talking about? The glory that Christ shares with you. The glory that Christ has given to you. And it's not a mystery. It's not something that Paul invented because Jesus said the same when he prayed to the Father just before the crucifixion. Father, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them. Wow. This makes a difference in the whole world. In fact, it makes a difference in the whole universe. Think about that. There is a universe out there that is eagerly waiting, groaning, and longing to see the glory that God is going to be revealing in you. His glory manifest in you. His glory reflected by you. His glory in you. That sets all creation free from its slavery to corruption. Now, by the way, did you notice how Paul earlier early talked about us being in slavery, but not in slavery anymore, freed in Christ? And how that freedom comes from Christ, and it affects us, and then from us it flows out and affects the entire creation? Wow. Ponder that. Think about it. Verse 22, For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but we also ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. Oh, see, it's not talking about two bodies. It's not talking about two natures. It's not talking about two selves. It's talking about one, who you are being redeemed in Christ with a new identity, with a new birth 
as a child of God. That's who you are. And that is important. Because as a child of God, you are an heir of God and a co-heir with Christ. The reality that we have in Christ, however, here it says, is not yet present. And so we, together with creation, groan. We look forward to that. And yes, we see God at work in, in the work of redemption, or as Paul said it earlier, we are still in the process of sanctification, in which our very nature is redeemed in Christ, and we are made partakers, as Peter says in 2 Peter 1.4, we are made partakers of the divine nature, of the very nature of God, and that's what redeems us through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, the indwelling of God himself in us, it's big stuff happening in here. Big stuff. And it causes us to, to have a little foretaste of what God has in store for us, enough for us to just long for the fullness of it, to crave that fullness. Oh, as the Apostle Paul said elsewhere, to keep our eyes on the things above, not on the things below. Why? Because the things below are temporary. They're here today and gone tomorrow. In the blinking of an eye, they're gone. But the things above are permanent. The same thing that Jesus said in the Sermon of the Mount. Build your treasure in heaven, not on earth. Because the treasures you build on earth will be gone. For one thing or another, they will be gone. But the treasure you build in heaven will stay and will be there forever. Verse 24, for in hope we have been saved. But hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he already has or sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, then we perseverance, we wait eagerly for it. And that is our calling. And that is our reminder that we long for what is not yet, but we are. In other words, we long for who we are in Christ and its fullness. We are declared to be that already. Look at Ephesians 5 and how God sees us in Christ as pure, immaculate, perfect, brilliant, spotless. We are declared to be that way, but we are still in the process of actually becoming that way. So we long for that time. We long for the fullness, the fullness of our transformation, of redemption. Maybe I should say redemption, not transformation. Okay? We long for the fullness of his kingdom. We long for the fullness of the inheritance. But yet, as C.S. Lewis said, God gives us a little taste here and now to remind us that better things are coming but then allows us to experience trials to remind us of the fact that our inheritance is not for the here and now. It's just too big. Listen, this is an inheritance that affects all creation. So tell me, how can we, in our limited state right now, affect all creation? We can barely affect the environment around us. We can barely affect the little world around us, can we? Oh, that we do. So there you go. See, the pattern that God has set in motion God says to Adam and Eve as he created them, he says, look, people, participate in my work. I created this environment for you. Now here, work in it and upkeep it and participate in them. He didn't say, well, create a world. He said, take a small part in what I'm doing in this creative process. But it, even from that beginning, it gives us that craving of that better day, of that better time. And so we live accordingly even now. Even though we're not perfect, even though we're not there yet, 
we have the privilege of participating in God's nature now. We have a privilege of participating and sharing in the love of Christ now that is poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. We have the privilege of being part of the work of God, the work of Jesus Christ, even now. And so we do. Keep your eyes on the things above. And I think we know what that means. I think we now know because of Thankfully, by the, by the grace of God, Paul was inspired to, by God to write and share with us this, this letter to the Romans. We know, we understand what the things above entails. We are reminded even though we don't yet see the fullness of that reality, who we actually are in Christ, we are already called to participate in it during this life. And that's why Paul earlier said, look, don't be like an elephant that pretends to be a dog. Know who you are in Christ. You owe nothing to the flesh. So why do you live as slaves of the flesh when you actually owe everything to the Holy Spirit and let the Holy Spirit guide you and live your life in the Holy Spirit or by the Holy Spirit? So let us live now, not as if our debt was to the flesh, but knowing who we are in Christ and what we have in Christ. In that freedom that we have in the Holy Spirit, in their freedom to express his love and grow spiritually to be more and more like our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ in our redemption. Let that be our commitment.